90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Oh, pretty good. Pretty good. Just got back from our first big field trip weekend, so that's always fun. The weather was totally enjoyable. I was going to ask about that because it's always iffy this time of year in Oklahoma. Man, it really is. Either it's super awesome or it's not even close to being bearable, but it was 60s, so it was pretty wonderful. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, actually driving home uh, today, the roads were getting slick out here. We had freezing drizzle and in the 20s, and it was just not that lovely today. Uh, Even Colorado drivers can't drive on that, I'm guessing. No, there's nothing you're going to do when there's black ice. Yeah. Four-wheel drive doesn't do any good when they're all sliding. Mm-mm. I'm sure we've had a fun paper about that before. <laughs> I'm sure we have. <laughs> Excellent. Well, how how is it uh, sitting at a desk all day? Well, you sit at a desk all day anyway, though, didn't you? I'll say that's pretty much the norm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> gotcha. No, it's actually going really great. I've got Excellent. to uh, start getting my hands in some code here at Unidata. And doing all kinds of fun stuff. So I know, working I know. on SKUTs, which are my favorite Ooh. plot. Uh, <laughs> and doing some server stuff, which is always interesting. So yeah, it's been a lot of fun. I know you're not really used to coding, so I hope I hope you catch up to the curve pretty fast. <laughs> <laughs> there are a few new things that I want to try that I'm going to have to uh, beef up on. But I'm pretty excited about them because they're very cool projects. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, so yeah, no, I'm I'm really enjoying it. I got uh, two big 4K monitors on my desk, so oh, that's exciting. Our, well, goodness. just just one right now because I'm using an old computer until my new one gets here, and it will only drive one 4K it can't, monitor. Can't support them both. Ouch! <laughs> it can barely support the one. <laughs> wow, um, is it that big of a difference? You know, I thought no. And Retina, everybody went on about how Mac Retina displays were amazing. And I was like, eh, maybe, maybe not. This is, it, it's a Dell 4K monitor. I'll put the link in the show notes. Um, it is much different. Really? If you hold the same picture up on the laptop screen, which is 15 inch next to the monitor, which is 27 inch, so a lot more space for, mm-hmm. you know, in pixels, uh, there's a marked difference. Wow. Well, now you're making me regret my 32-inch monitor buy <laughs> from a week ago, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm I'm very, very happy with them. Excellent. Excellent. Are you going to get ones that, obviously, that you can turn, you know, vertically? Because that's what you coders like to do, right? Yeah, I think I'll probably set up one vertical yeah. and one horizontal. <laughs> awesome. Either that or I'll just see how much I can melt the graphics card in the new laptop and use a small <laughs> one vertical next to the two horizontals. <laughs> you know, I I wish I could say that that's, that's the biggest setup I've seen, but it's not it's not even close, so. <laughs> no. no. There are a few people that have pretty insane ones. Yeah. Uh-huh. One of our former colleagues, I think he's got five set up. Mm-hmm. So, yes. <laughs> yeah, but nobody's running that off a laptop. No, no, not even close. <laughs> it does raise, know, we, raise the temperature in the basement quite a bit, though. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, we need pretty big monitors because we have to read a lot of feedback. <laughs> that was a beautiful segue. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I have gotten... This is awesome. Like, usually my inbox is clogged with 
where did you post this report we're supposed to do? But we've had a lot of fun things to read lately. We have. And it's been a couple weeks since we really were caught up with the move and holidays and everything else. So I thought we would do a short show topic after a lot of listener feedback. <laughs> Man, yeah. So we had a whole bunch Um and I think we have to thank Embedded FM from for this, too. And we get so many pictures from Australia now. It makes me so happy. Oh, yes. <laughs> we have pictures from Australia and Alaska. So be looking for those up on Facebook. We've already had some up on our Facebook and Twitter. But there are a lot more to come. Uh, yes. Um, well, let's get started with all this, huh? All right. Well, our first bit of feedback comes actually about last week's show. Uh, this is a roughly LIFO Q, so last in, first out. Uh, <laughs> and it is from listener Gary, who said that when he was listening to the, the podcast with Jay last week, uh, he was an Eagle Scout in 2010, and he's had the opportunity since then to work with Scout groups teaching portions of the Geology Pinner Badge, and said he really recommends it because it's one of his uh, fondest memories from college. Uh, yes. Um, I, I don't actually think I've responded to Gary yet, but I meant to tell him this. So hopefully he's listening this week. <laughs> um, so we do a lot of outreach, uh, with Boy Scouts, um, both our department, our geology department, uh, cause we have a really active club called the Pick and Hammer Club. And so they do boy and girl scout, uh, geology merit badges, as well as the, um, natural history museum down the road from us. And it is so cool. And we've specifically, we have this big, stream table and I know I've talked about it before but the kids love the stream table <laughs> and it's like a research grade stream table but it also has you know toy dinosaurs and stuff in it <laughs> and you as, as any respectable institute's stream table <laughs> exactly. does exactly I actually went down there the other day and I found a Lego with scuba gear on buried in the sand <laughs> <laughs> And it, it made my day. <laughs> um, so we have that. And then we have that um, virtual reality sandbox where you can do topo maps on that um, using the Xbox 360 stuff. And that's super cool. They get very excited about it. And as I love how Gary points out that that's one of his best memories of college was teaching these kids. And it's so true. I always get so nervous doing this stuff because I, you know get nervous around little kids like that because I never know, you know, what they know, what they're excited about. And it's just, it turns into such a fun experience for everybody, I think. So that was some really great feedback about how you can reach out and do something maybe uncomfortable and get a whole lot out of it. Yeah. And generally it turns out that the little kids have won the most interest Yes, and also some of the best questions. Like <laughs> there are more questions from groups of children coming through the lab where you're like, "Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah." Um. <laughs> it's just like that thing about you know reaching outside your, you know, your research area for ideas. It's absolutely true. Like I've had junior high kids and middle school kids ask me crazy questions about Earth's magnetic field that it just blow me away. I'm like, that's amazing. Please be a geologist so I can teach mm -hmm. you when you're older. <laughs> so, yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah. So let's see. Uh, our next piece of feedback. Uh, first off, it's, it's from listener Steve, and he has several uh, bits in here. But one of them, he's the only person that pointed out that last week I goofed. <laughs> Oops. 
Yeah, so don't edit when you're very tired. Uh, There was a long period of silence before the fun paper, between the interview and the fun paper, and that's completely my fault. I'm very sorry. You should you should blame me for it because obviously you do all the work for this. <laughs> so <laughs> we'll just say, you know, I took my hand at it and that's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay. It was worth the wait, right? <laughs> yes. No, I think it was great. But uh, he also mentioned that he actually happened to grow up near the family of another famous Phillips, Captain Richard Phillips. Ah, uh-huh. yes. There's a great wiki link in here too for this merchant mariner (laughs) so this was the captain richard phillips with the somali pirate thing in 2009 yeah link in the show notes uh (laughs) and he as far as swallowing money or the fun paper uh, he had an interesting story about ancient greece yeah so steve says in ancient greece a day laborer would be paid an obol per day it's a small coin worth some fraction of a drachma right he says maybe a sixth uh, apparently, this was before the invention of pockets because people would carry their obols in their mouths, which is crazy. Right. Uh, he says he found out the only real reference to the Greeks carrying obols in their mouths comes from a few comic plays by Aristophanes. So, who knows? Maybe that's not really true. Maybe it was a joke. But that's pretty gross. Yeah. But yeah, it's interesting. (laughs) Keep it in your mouth. (laughs) Bad idea. Uh, And you know, there might have been some ingestion and uh, stock market impacts. That's right. From from obol swallowing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, beautiful. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So we have a a new listener, Joe, who wrote into us too with some super awesome pictures. Uh, Joe says he loves our show. Thank you, sir. And he's been listening to us for a few months now. So he is formerly trained in cell biology and pharmacology, but always loves (laughs) learning about things outside his field, which you can tell that we do too from our fun paper picks. Usually. (laughs) (laughs) Especially yours today, John, but we'll get to that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So he's a tinkerer and he sent him some, he sent him in some cool pictures of his homemade seismometer, which looks super awesome. Yeah, so we will link it in the show notes. But this is a an arm with an oil damper uh, and a pickup coil magnet on the end. I can't tell exactly what style the hinge is, but believe mm-hmm. it or not, this seismometer is generally referred to as a Lehman seismometer, but spelled <laughs> differently than my name. <laughs> no, you should just take credit for it. It's cool. <laughs> <laughs> but it was cool. I mean, well, I would have looked at that and probably not realized it was a seismometer. Um, but he said it's fairly sensitive. He lives outside of St. Louis, and he said he picked up a 3.5 magnitude here in Oklahoma, so about 630 kilometers away. Yeah, and the waveform actually looked not that bad. Uh, <laughs> then he had another waveform that did not line up with any events reported by the USGS. And after looking at it, uh, my best guess is it might be a quarry blast or some local event like that because uh, these often show up they don't travel very far they're very high frequency uh and the gs does not catalog quarry blasts right yeah um and there's lots of limestone quarrying all around that area so that's cool it'll be neat to hear back from joe to know if there is a quarry right next to him and that's indeed what he saw um he also suggested that we do a show about amateur seismometers and that would be really neat we could do a bunch of sort of citizen science things i believe um so that's really fun. Good idea. 
Yeah, I think a citizen science show in general is a good idea. Uh, I know that there is a lot of citizen science planned for the upcoming solar eclipse. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, I'm excited about that. We need to have somebody on to talk about that, how to safely view it, because I'm going to be relatively close to the path of totality, so yes, I'm definitely yeah. going. Yeah, exactly. Um, and th- it seems like there's a lot of citizen science in the life sciences. I don't know how much goes on in our sciences. I know there is some citizen science out in California led by the USGS, um, you know, making little seismometers that are attached to your computer. Right. And they send the data in, and so they've got a big network like that. But um, we'll have to research that because that's always something good to be involved in. Oh, absolutely. Um, Let's see. Okay, so listener James, who did come to us through Embedded, uh, had a suggestion that we add a link for the MP3 files in the episode notes. So I'm trying to figure out an automated way to do that. I think I'm getting pretty close to that. Excellent. Uh, and also pointed out that on some platforms, the links uh, in the show notes at the footer, so like the the link to my website and the link to the podcast website, didn't always work correctly. Mm-hmm. So I should have that fixed. But if you do have any kind of link problems or anything like that, uh, let us know. And he also had some suggestions for some show topics that I think could be good for the future. But I think I'll leave it at that. <laughs> um, I'm just impressed somebody clicks on the links in our show notes. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, we also have another fairly new listener, Mike, who asked us why we did our 100th episode on episode 99. Yeah. And, you know, I, we, we've got some feedback from Mike before. And he said that when I said that any sane person starts counting from zero, his mind just exploded uh, and wanted to know why I said that. And I sent him a link. I'm actually going to uh, put it in the show notes as well that shows in a very elegant fashion why you should start counting from zero <laughs> that it is indeed the most sane way to encompass a set uh, my, my apologies mike <laughs> <laughs> but the the short answer is mo- a lot of programming languages uh, c python you know, take your pick generally are zero indexed which means that if you have an array just a collection let's say of 10 numbers the first number is the zeroth the second is the first third is the second, and so on, and then the last one would be the ninth. Uh, and there are exceptions, like Fortran and MATLAB start counting at one. Mm-hmm. So one to ten instead of zero to nine. <laughs> but we know what you feel about both of those things. <laughs> uh, yeah, Fortran and MATLAB I definitely have strong opinions about, but uh, I, I think, I, I don't know, does zero indexing, did you love it, hate it? Not have any strong feelings about it? Um, well, I remember picking up my first C programming book and, you know, starting the Hello World thing. So I was more enhanced or entranced with that, <laughs> with that being okay. the title. Um, I mean, it makes sense Makes sense to me. I think it's funny. I think it's a funny, nerdy thing, really. Well, you know what they say. There are two types of uh, bugs <laughs> and common errors in computer programming, off by one errors. Um, and oh, nerds. <laughs> the, the, the reason, the reason though, is a lot of times, so the arrays really, I can see it's a pointer to some address in memory mm-hmm. in your computer. Okay. And what the index is, is it actually is an offset from the beginning. So the first element has zero offset, offset. from the beginning. Yeah. So that's why it's the zero. Because it's the beginning. 
Yeah. Right. No, I mean, it totally, it totally makes sense, but I do think it is a quirky thing that is hilarious. So. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but link to the show notes, I could, I could rattle on about why zero gonna, indexing <laughs> is the way to go. I was going to say, I'm sorry you brought it up, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, we had a question about some clouds coming uh, as well. Yes. Um, so that was exciting. So we've heard from listener Jenna before, and she linked in a picture of what John and I are still not arguing about, but <laughs> it's some really great alto cumulus clouds, and it looks like they may be lined up into what you might call a cloud street. Right, and I thought it was interesting. You and I both, our first reaction was gravity waves. Yeah, exactly. And then we looked at it and we said, no, the, the period's too short. It can't be a gravity wave. So, I mean, when you see those big, long clouds and either in stratus clouds, they just sort of look like you're underneath this nice wavy blanket or something like that. And sometimes you'll get them where you only just get lines of clouds, but they're pretty far apart. Um, right. And so those are the gravity waves that we both automatically gravitate towards, I guess. Well, and you know, <laughs> now it's more confusing because there is this gravity wave detection by LIGO. Yeah, which is not But they're the same totally thing. different. <laughs> yeah. Those are gravitational waves. These... Whoever named them yes. uh, did a very poor job. They're more accurately called buoyancy waves. Right. So, so it's just like a, the stable atmosphere oscillating. Yeah. You're right. Uh, and, but that's not what this was, though. Right. And so cloud streets, they form, I mean, they form due to these little convective rolls, which the word horizontal vorticity roll is one of my favorite meteorological terms. I will it say. sounds yummy. Doesn't it? <laughs> Delicious. <laughs> um, and so these cloud streets are much closer together. And so you'll see things that are parallel to the wind direction, just lines of puffy little clouds. And they're seen very easily from satellite photos. Oh, yeah. And so they just look like streaks that are very, very close together of these fluffy little clouds. And so Jenna's picture is from the ground. Um, but it kind of looks like a cloud street. Yeah. I'm, I might be convinced. I also think it just looks like a really dense alto cumulus layer. But maybe I'll try to pull some satellite photos and we can argue about it. Wind directions <laughs> and all that jazz. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, we also had another piece of feedback that came in actually just before we recorded this. So it's not even in the notes. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, had, I had to ask about this one real quick. <laughs> So the the We Martians podcast mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. had tweeted, you know, we had our Devil's Tower show right. not long ago. <laughs> and there is a 3D image from the high-rise camera. Oh. Uh, so this is on the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. And it is an image of what looks like Devil's Tower, but it's on Mars. Awesome. And it's in the red-blue stereo view. So if you have those red-blue <gasps> glasses from somewhere... I'll retweet it on our show account, but you just put your red-blue glasses on and you see the 3D view from Mars. It's amazing. That is awesome. <laughs> uh, we have a 90-inch TV in one of our um, interactive learning classrooms, and it's a 3D TV, so. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> we also got some listener feedback from Mitch, who said he found our show about six months ago. 
uh, which was kind of awesome. And he's downloaded all of our episodes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he got his geology degree from Humboldt State University, which is in Northern California, which I actually got to visit all around Humboldt a couple of years ago. And it is absolutely beautiful there. Um, and so he has given us some really great stuff, hasn't he? <laughs> Yeah, so I actually got a package with some books. Uh, they are The Bone Builder's Notebook, or More Than You Really Wanted to Know About Preparing Animal Skeletons for Articulation. That's the full title. Uh, by Lee Post. And then he also sent some project books to go with them. And he sent a set for me and a set for you that I'm going to drop in the mail tomorrow. And we'll have to discuss them once we've both had a chance Yay. to take a look. Thanks, Mitch. That's super awesome. Um, I'm also going to request some pictures from Homer, Alaska, because that's where he lives. And, man, I'm really jealous of that. <laughs> right. Uh, we also had Sergey sent in uh, a comment saying that he was really enjoying the show. And then one of his colleagues has translated a book by Coriolis on the physics of billiards. I'm really excited about this. I grew up basically in a pool hall. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> I, I never knew that meteorology and pool would ever come together. So I'm very excited to read this uh, translated version from uh, Coriolis. What what year was that again? It was 18-something. I don't that's remember awesome. the exact year off the top of my head. I can't wait. <laughs> yes, I. that's another one we're definitely going to be talking yeah, about. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. That, that's probably going to be its own show. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's a fun paper, no, fun book Friday. Yes, exactly. Uh, <laughs> and the very last piece of feedback that we want to go over is actually an audio comment that has been in the queue for a little bit. It's from listener Martin, and he's going to tell us how academia works in Africa. Hi, John. Hi, Shannon. I was just listening to your episode about what is academia and all of that, and I thought I'd just give a quick perspective of how it works in South Africa. So most of it is more or less the same, except that for some reason our basic bachelor degree, especially in science, is only three years long. Then there is what's called an honors year. This is essentially a fourth year, which is supposed to sort of provide a bit of a capstone, and at least in theory that's all you should need. Uh, that's no longer really the case um, because of inflation requiring higher um, higher degrees. Uh, most people would then do a master's. It's very, very, very unusual to go straight into a PhD. Uh, master's is two years, but in most cases, uh, these are what the British would call an MRes. So it's actually a master's by research. You don't really do any courses or anything like that unless you need to fill in a few gaps or something along the, um, where you didn't where you didn't cover them in undergrad because you're now specializing in something so a master's is essentially two years and there's no real requirement that it be original um, but it does need to be some sort of contribution and then a PhD is supposed to be three years and here you do need to make something some sort of original research so in a way, we jump straight to a fight. Uh, if you're going to go all the way, you do research for about five years um, with a lot less coursework involved. There are masters by coursework as well, but they're not as common. So yeah, just to give an idea of how that works down here. But otherwise, things sound pretty similar 
there isn't as much of a focus on things like tenure, um, at least that I've noticed. It's a really big thing in the U.S. Uh, I don't see the same sort of chasing after it. Anyway, thank you very much for all your podcasts so far. Cheers. All right. Well, thanks, Martin. That was actually uh, pretty informative. Yes, so absolutely. It, it works a little different everywhere. Uh, and Martin's in our Slack chat room quite a bit. So if you have questions specifically about South Africa and he's more than happy to answer them, I bet. <laughs> yeah. And just pop into our Slack chat room in general. The link is in the show notes and does work as far as I know. Uh, <laughs> we always enjoy chatting with people on there. And now that I am at a computer for sure all the time, uh, I definitely get to monitor uh, it a little more closely. Excellent. Yes. So in the interest of having a short show. <laughs> it never happens. Up, Why do you say it? <laughs> right. I, I, I came up with a topic that we did get another piece of feedback requesting a show about uh, winter precipitation and why it sticks to some surfaces and not to others. And I think that's going to be somewhere in a future episode. Mm -hmm. But it reminded me of this interesting winter phenomena called ice circles or ice discs. So I've never seen these before. (laughs) I've never seen one in person. I would love to. Uh, yeah. It seems like, well, we'll talk about how they form and stuff, but it seems like they would be everywhere. So that's sort of my question about these things is why are they, why haven't I seen this before, you know? Right. So. I mean, I guess I live in Oklahoma. That's probably why I haven't seen them before. <laughs> yeah. I mean, generally in the far north U.S. and like Scandinavia yeah. and Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, but what are so, these things? <laughs> These are big, almost perfect circles of ice that can be anywhere from tens of centimeters to many meters, uh, so like 15 meters in diameter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're rotating and in the middle of the lake or river or whatever. Right, exactly. So in any sort of frozen body of water. And yeah. that's crazy because there's some really great pictures of just these huge ones that are just sitting there doing their thing, slowly rotating. Yeah, and they're rotating, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll learn more from our paper later, but mm-hmm. roughly a degree a second. Right. Mm-hmm. So not fast. No, no. Nope. Man, they're, they're so strange. I just, I hadn't, I read a lot about this after, after I knew that's what we were talking about today, just because I haven't seen them at all, and they're really neat. I could see why this would spark somebody's interest. Which it did, right? I mean, the first was reported in an 1895 Scientific American. Yeah, and did did you look at the Scientific American article? Uh, I have it up here right now. So <laughs> this is this is great. Uh, it's by somebody named J. M. Bates, and it's just two paragraphs. Uh, it says to the editor, of Scientific American, and he is reporting, seeing this. He calls it a revolving ice cake. Uh, I like that. <laughs> and so he describes it, what it looks like, that it was slowly rotating, uh, and so on. And then my favorite part is the last sentence. He says, I enclose a rough drawing, which will give an idea of this curious formation. <laughs> and then it shows the drawing, and it's gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to show this in class, I think. I mean, that is what scientific drawing should be. <laughs> it's a rough drawing. Ridiculous. <laughs> right. 
Yeah, and you know, looking at so this is uh, Bedford, Westchester County, New York, and I'm trying to decide if it looks like in the ice. You, know, you can see two people standing on it. You can see their shadow. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe those are shadows of buildings or trees on the ice. I couldn't tell if it's that or a scanning artifact or what. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it looks like there's... Anyway, it's it's a gorgeous drawing. And if somebody said they were going to give you a rough drawing <laughs> now, it wouldn't be anywhere close to this. Uh, uh, no, I would I would die to, uh, to get something like that. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, <laughs> which is why I'm going to... Um, show it and i mean if you don't even download it and you just look at sort of the preview of it it looks like a picture yeah yeah it's unbelievable and so there are several uh, videos on youtube that i'll link in one in north dakota one of a russian ice circle and what really strikes me about these is they're almost perfectly round yes Mm -hmm. and there's a pretty narrow margin between them and the rest of the ice Mm-hmm. And they look completely surreal. Yeah, I think I think it's the slow rotational speed that creeps me out a little bit, I will say. <laughs> and, you know, there are a lot of ideas about what's going on. One that I thought was interesting was that as the ice is melting and there's some flow, uh, you're getting little ice chunks that get caught in an eddy and they all get stuck together and form this chunk of ice that's rotating in the eddy. Right, and there's actually there's actually a name for that kind of ice. Right? What's that? That uh, frazzle, frizzle, frazzle. Oh yes, I remember <laughs> seeing that in there. <laughs> yeah, so like frazzle ice, I guess, and it's just these weird little, you know, just incoherent chunks, and that's how they think that maybe that stuff comes together just due to the motion of the water freezes together. I don't know if that's what I believe though. Yeah, and. You know, I kind of like the idea that a piece of ice breaks off yeah. and then Rounds by the process of rotation that we'll get to, it just grinds itself into a round shape because it's rotating around some center of mass or convection or whatever. That's, I mean, you know, that's exactly what I think because these things probably come from these bigger ice sheets, even though there's a lot of pictures of ones that are just really far away from the ice sheets and it's just a whole bunch of little circles hanging out, but yeah, I mean, it's just like a quartz grain or something like that. You know, you get a piece of sediment that gets knobbed off, and it's really pointy, and it sits there, and it does its thing, it moves around, and it gets rounded. That's, right. That's sort of the intuitive way that I feel like these guys form as well. Well, then there was a paper that came out uh, in March of 2016 mm-hmm. by Dorbolo et al., in Physical Review E, which is a great journal yeah. if you're interested in interesting physics things. Uh, and it is called Rotation of Melting Ice Discs Due to Melt Fluid Flow. Which, if you take out the word ice and melting, <laughs> it sounds like a geology paper. Yeah, it sure does. Uh, <laughs> so when I, went to, when I went to look this up, I was looking in the geology reference stuff. I'm like, why can't I find this? Oh, okay. <laughs> I got right. it. <laughs> Uh, this paper was excellent. This was an excellent paper. I enjoyed it so much. Yeah. And, and when's the last time you were able to say that about a paper? I know. Exa- and I read the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> Which also doesn't happen very often. <laughs> and so this is a, a Belgium research group. And they did one of my favorite things. Take the field and simplify it and put it in the lab. Yep. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, it was great, though. It was such an elegant. It's very elegant. It it's is an elegant experiment, and plus, I think I feel like the um, experimental setup was drawn in paint, and that makes me happy too. <laughs> yeah, that was a little unfortunate. <laughs> um. I liked it. <laughs> so they tackle the problem of why these discs are rotating, and they leave the problem of how they get there to somebody else, <laughs> which I also right. appreciate. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, the idea that water flowing by creates some kind of eddy or drag uh, didn't really do it for them. And they wanted to see what would happen if you put an ice disc in fluid, in water, and just let it sit. Right. And so this happens. <laughs> I love this. So the whole the whole deal is because there's this so-called density anomaly of water, right? That water is actually at its maximum density at 4 degrees C. Right, above and below that. As you go more towards ice, water gets much less dense because ice floats on top of liquid water. Mm -hmm. And as you go above 4C, it gets less dense as well until you get to gas. Right, exactly. And so they took Petri dishes, froze some water. Some of it was colored, but we'll get to that in a minute. Um, and stuck it into this very temperature-controlled thermalized bath. Actually, the disks were in a pool inside a thermalized bath. And they also covered the top of the setup so that no air currents from the room could cause rotation. Yeah, see, elegant. Getting rid of all of that, all of that problem. Um, right. And so the diameter they report that some of these magnitudes of these ice discs is up to a hundred meters. That's crazy. That seems large. I know, it? but it says that two two orders of magnitude yeah. from one to a hundred meters. Yeah. So that's. I mean, that's big, but of course, their experimental ice discs were much smaller because right. they were petri done dish. in a petri dish. <laughs> right. Uh, exactly. And so, what I really liked about this was so the petri dish was 85 millimeters in diameter, just found that. Um, they would freeze the petri dishes with some insulation on top so that they would freeze at the bottom and freeze <laughs> upwards so that bubbles and dust and other impurities would actually be pushed up to the surface. I thought that was cool too. <laughs> Uh, so they yeah. got this perfect little piece of ice. <laughs> right. And then on their perfect little piece of ice, they draw an ellipse that goes from edge to edge of the ice. Mm -hmm. Or, yeah. well, almost edge to edge. Yeah. 50 Close millimeters. Enough. Close enough. And, th and they did that because then you can put a camera above this pool, take video, and using my favorite, Python and OpenCV... <laughs> You can analyze each frame from the webcam, determine the position of the ellipse, so you get not only the center of the disk, but the angular position, so you can track the center of mass and the rotation rate. Right, exactly, which, as uh, you mentioned earlier, um, they got an angular rotation speed of about a degree per second. Right, which roughly matches what we see in the videos online. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But why do they start to, to turn? So that's that's the question, because these spontaneously start rotating, right? And that has to do with this whole melting issue. And also, the way they tracked this was that they colored the water that they froze in the Petri dish so that they could also use cameras to try to see, you know, what was happening in these currents that get set up when these things start rotating. Right. And when they tried to do this initially, they didn't actually have that great of results yeah. because as it turns out not only do these rotate but if you just leave a small disc in a big pool they translate as well so they drift around <laughs> and it makes it difficult 
And um, herein comes the next elegant solution. Exactly. So they stuck a piece of nickel inside the eyes, right? Because nickel has this magnetization. It's not super strong, right? And then they could hold a magnet above the water and keep the disc in one position without affecting the rotational speed. Right. So you think, well, why don't you just put a bar magnet or something in it? Well, if you had that or even a disc magnet that's off level, then you built a great compass. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and you don't want that. So by having this little nickel ball in there, they didn't have that problem. It just, like you said, it held it perfectly in the center of the pool under their image analysis rig. Yeah. Beautiful. It is. It's so great. Um, and the figures showing, you know, the constrained ones versus the free ones are super neat. They're like those spirographs you used to make on. <laughs> it's exactly what I thought when I saw them too. It's like, Children I think I had a kit 80s. that did this. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. you, you put a pin in it and all the gears and then went around and around and around until you lost all the pieces eventually. Exactly. You just got the one crappy one left that no one likes to use anyway. Um, right. Oh, it's, it was so perfect. But um, it's, it's really cool. So they've got a graph of this rotational speed versus temperature, too. Yeah, and this was interesting. So once you get to four, things kick up. And as you continue to increase the temperature of the water bath, the rotational speed increases up until when you get to 50 Celsius, which you know, you're cooking. Yeah. Uh, you're at five degrees a second. So pretty small variation over a large temperature range. Uh, but pretty robust result, really, even though the air bars are a little large. They are. Uh, th yeah. The trend is very clear. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. So, I mean, why do these things start to spin? And it has to do with that, um, that density of water. And that water, when it gets to that 4 degrees C, it's dense, so it's going to start to sink. And it sets up, basically, a vortex below the ice disk. Right. So they use this uh, tracking method where they have laser sheets that excite the dye that you talked about. And then they use cameras. And you can actually get at many points on the surface in a map view and cross-section view mm -hmm. the velocity. Uh, and they made these gorgeous velocity maps. And you see exactly what you described. Water is coming towards the disk. As it comes towards the disk, it gets cooled and starts turning down. Then it hits the magic four-degree point and dive bombs towards the bottom. More water rushes in from the sides, and it's like water going down your drain. Right. And we know what happens when you pull the drain plug on your tub. Right. Uh, you get a vortex. <laughs> so this is awesome because I just, I mean, it's, it's thermal convection, but it's sort of the opposite of what you think of as convection, really. Well, if you're a geologist, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly. You're not heating it, you're cooling it. Uh, <laughs> Which was very awesome. Yeah. And so you get this really nice current set up. It induces, uh, to use the $10 word, vorticity. <laughs> yes. And this vorticity causes the fluid to rotate, which by drag processes causes the ice to rotate. Mm -hmm. And so now you've got these creepy, slowly rotating disks of ice hanging out on your river or your pond. Right. And, you know, I thought it was interesting, too, that towards the end of the paper, uh, they point out that we really, there's not many reports of these on lakes and definitely nothing very deep, mm -hmm. uh, because the water deep in the lake would yeah. be at four Celsius. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and the water between the ice and the lake bottom is zero to four. So if you think about the density profile of that lake, you can't get any denser. You're not going to get sinking. And without the sinking, you don't get any vorticity. Exactly. And this is also why if you get your your municipal water from a lake, that certain times of the year, the, the lake turns over. And it's due to this density anomaly of water. And that's why right. you stir up all that sediment. And some t- parts of the year, your lake tastes or your water tastes really gross. <laughs> right. Um and also, you think about, well, what about icebergs? Why do melting icebergs not rotate? Why is the Titanic not, you know, interacting with a rotating object? Mm-hmm. Well, salt water is very dense. <laughs> and so if you're melting freshwater ice, which is what icebergs are, mm-hmm. into salt water, you're actually going to have all the fresh water floating on top until it gets mixed out. Right, exactly. So once again, no sinking. Um I also thought that it was interesting. The very last sentence in this paper was slightly confusing to me. A caramel disc has been attached to a floating circular boat. The melting of the caramel has generated the rotation of the boat. Is that something funny they did? I I don't know. In the lab or what? Yeah. <laughs> and they say, I mean, the mechanism is generic. Well, I don't know how many boats you stick caramels onto, but okay. <laughs> you know, I mean, I guess that could be important in a... Uh, bizarre charlie and the chocolate factory scenario <laughs> yeah i guess so um uh, they, they did say it a couple times that this was a very sort of a generic you know problem and it was but i think their their approach was very elegant right hmm. uh, yeah we'll forget that that exists <laughs> so so there you go uh as shannon put it creepy rotating <laughs> ice discs <laughs> Look, I watch too many horror movies, okay? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Okay, so I think that means it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. Yay! Sorry, the kid's asleep. I gotta be quiet. (laughs) (laughs) And this is a listener-suggested fun paper by (laughs) listener Martin. And it is high heels as supernormal stimuli. How Wearing High Heels Affects Judgments of Female Attractiveness by Morris et al. And before you start sending us your hate mail, (laughs) we want to make it very clear that this is not a paper that in any way is objectifying women or anything like that. It's actually a pretty interesting study uh, about uh, there's a chicken and the egg problem in the end. Yes. Uh, and also some interesting biases that we might have when rating things. Yes. Um, so this is in the Journal of Evolution and Human Behavior. And so I was like, what are we reading? <laughs> right. And also immediately, you know, feminist hackles went way up. But from an evolutionary standpoint, this is actually a very interesting question. Um, right. And, I mean, any... Any science paper who in the introduction says that an analysis of the cover photographs of pornographic magazines notes that over 50% involved women wearing high heels. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that one sure didn't help be, the case any. No, sure to be uh, a winner. But you've got to keep going to get to the real meat of it, which is really interesting. Um, the second paragraph, and I don't think you can relate to me here, but <laughs> no, it says... Wearing high heels can cause chronic damage, okay, and increase the likelihood of accidental trauma. 
<laughs> which I have experienced on numerous occasions while wearing high heels. <laughs> um, so this is the point and why it's in the, you know, evolutionary behavior or evolution and human behavior journal is that why would you do this thing that's going to hurt you or fall if you're me? Um, why well, do it? Yeah. And they point out that high heels are raised shoes are not a new thing. No. And I actually didn't know this. <laughs> I didn't But either. men and women wore them in medieval times, and they were sometimes like tens of inches high because you would wear them over your normal shoes, and you did it so you didn't have to walk in all of the waste that was in the street. Uh, that's unbelievable. So, see, humans have been lazy for quite some time. Instead of figuring out a good sanitary mechanism... <laughs> No, we'll just wear these <laughs> shoes instead. <laughs> Put big stilts on, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Which is super embarrassing. Um, so the point is that, you know, there's this thing that's bad for us. Evolutionarily, we shouldn't do it, but we always have, so why? And that is because they talk about the fact that secondary sexual characteristics are thought to be important for attractiveness in both male and female. So maybe high heels have something to do with emphasizing certain aspects of the female form that would make it more attractive. And therefore, this could be even an unconscious motivation for wearing heels. Right. Or even, you know, in, in towards the end of the paper, they say maybe it's just that some of these secondary characteristics are subconsciously changed because you're wearing heels right. and you feel better about yourself. You feel more confident. You're taller and you change the way you walk. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So do you change it because of a, uh, a a mechanics standpoint of trying to walk on these, or is it more of a mental thing? I'm going to tell you, after wearing heels for several years, it's absolutely a mechanics. <laughs> but <laughs> Yeah, that seems to be the... <laughs> but I, I don't doubt that it could maybe influence your your mindset. Yes, I would agree Some, to you that, mean, too. I think male and female can agree that if you get dressed up to go somewhere and you put nice clothes on, you feel more confident, right? right? Exactly. Um, and so that's sort of one of those intangible things. I mean, it's easy to say, well, it changes the contours of your legs, your ankles, all that stuff. Um, but yeah, the confidence one was an interesting thing that they threw in there too, because um, the methodology in this paper was actually really interesting um, because they had people walk in high heels, but they didn't want people to rate attractiveness based on, you know, the person. They're trying to figure out if this changes the gait. And so they use these cool point light displays on different parts of the body to sort of... Right. Yeah, show, you know, the, the actual gait using this light stuff. So you're not actually looking at, you know, skin or anything else like that when you're judging this attractiveness. It just has to do with how the person's walking. You're looking at 13 green dots on a black screen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's it. The, the figure one is pretty spectacular because that's all it is, and you wouldn't know what it was if <laughs> you didn't know what you were reading here because it's just a bunch of green dots. Right. So they had 12 women walk on a treadmill for four minutes in flats and in high heels. The first two minutes of walking was not recorded so that they could get used to whatever shoes they were wearing. And then the last two minutes was, and it was randomized whether they walked in high heels or flats first. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love that they say this is so great to me. Obviously, women had input into this. It says um, the 12 women that were used all possessed high heeled shoes and wore them at least once a week. 
So there wasn't any of the sort of the awkward newborn horse <laughs> gates that you can get when you're trying to learn how to walk in high heels. Well, and what I thought was funny is they quote the statistics in that sentence that the mean number of pairs owned was 10.58 with a standard deviation of 8.82. <laughs> That's uh, beautiful. <laughs> mean age was 21.58 with a standard deviation of 3.39. Um, and so then they showed these captures of the 12 women walking but they didn't tell their participants anything. They just said, rate this on an attractiveness scale. Again, that Likert scale, mm-hmm. one to five. Yeah. The participants weren't just males either. They chose 15 females and 15 males to do the judgments for the study. Right. And they asked them, first they said, is it a man or a woman? Even though they were all women, they didn't know that. Yep. And then they asked them to estimate their age. So 16 to 18, 19 to 29, 30 to 39, and so on. And then to rate them on this Likert scale. And the results are remarkably consistent for something that is a human judgment. Yes. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Um, So they plot this mean attractiveness index for each walker. And it is crazy the difference is so between the attractiveness of the walker while wearing flats or heels, like, it's, it is, it's just unbelievable that this is a human, (laughs) a human study, because it's so precise, it seems like, it's very... Yeah, I mean, it's relatively close to a point. Yes. Yeah. On the Likert scale. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, and, and it's clear, everyone, the males and the females, everybody got judged, judged the heels as more attractive. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting that the females were actually more critical in their ratings. (laughs) I find that not surprising one bit. (laughs) And more consistent. Also not surprising. (laughs) Um, Except there there were participants one and two uh, had much less deviation than the others. They They must have walked more similarly. Uh, Mm -hmm. Don't know. It's hard to tell what happened there. But also it was funny that uh, a lot of the people, and they said, is this a male or a female, interpreted the images of people walking in flats as male. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. So obviously, when you take away whatever high heels do to the kinematics of walking, it's much more androgynous. Right. So therefore, and, that may be unconscious reason why you wear them in the first place. Right. And one of those uh, characteristics that they were able to pull out of the data was less, so faster pace, shorter steps, and there was more angling of the hip but less movement at the hip joint right Mm -hmm. so yeah some kind of interesting actual numerical things that you can extract out of this yeah this is right and because they had that they there's a table showing all that which is very interesting um but it's just so obvious that everyone rated them more attractive um due to that the biomechanical changes very weird yeah, and so then there's this question of, well, which came first? Did we wear heels to be more attractive? Mm-hmm. Did we feel more attractive because we were wearing heels? Did we do it to uh, attract the opposite sex? Was it to repel others of the same sex and say, no, I am I am the alpha here, sort of? Uh, yeah, there's a lot of interesting questions here that really the study can't address. Yeah. Uh, 
but are interesting to think about, sort of. Right, exactly. Um, they talk about sort of this super releasers and stuff like this, which is sort of beyond my understanding of evolution, actually. But um, there's a lot of discussion in the paper about that, so it's worth picking up if you're more um, savvy in this sort of thing than I am. But Yeah, and w- towards the end, one of my favorite parts of this was <laughs> they say that fashion might follow an evolutionary model. And they said, for example, female shoulder pads in the 1980s emphasized a particularly male aspect of the body. Flapper dresses in the 1920s did little to emphasize the female figure. However, we suggest that there may also be some artificial selection of fashion. So fashions, they say, are ephemeral, but some endure. For example, high heels. Mm -hmm. So are those that endure because they amplify these secondary characteristics? Yep. That paragraph was mind blowing to me. It's, yeah, it's and I guess you think about it. Fashion comes and goes in cycles. There are trends that aren't the next year because they didn't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, just, maybe there is this selection mechanism. Yeah, I'm thinking about the '80s. You know, when women entered the workforce in large amounts and having to, you know, fight basically for their positions, they would wear big shoulder pads to ask to reflect male aspects of the body that's super interesting right Hmm. but yeah uh i love how they say (laughs) at the end it is beyond the scope of this paper to investigate the relative importance of the various motivations for wearing high heels but it's almost certainly the case that the effect of heels on female gait is only one of many motivations for wearing heels (laughs) right (laughs) yeah that's interesting and i'll have to try to find it somewhere a while back i saw a picture of a foot in a high heel oh, x-rayed. Yeah. yeah, I've seen that before. And it just looked excruciating. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it does all kinds of weird things to your calf because um, it shortens your calf muscle. And so if you wear them all the time, it does all this weird stuff. And, yeah, it's not good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But why would yeah, you I'm do Yeah, I'm not going to be wearing those to work anytime soon. <laughs> no, no, you probably shouldn't because I have a feeling <laughs> you might suffer some of these. Oh, gosh, what did they call them again? Accidental traumas. <laughs> <laughs> yep, very possible. Uh, yeah, thanks for that, Martin. That was actually super interesting once I got over saying, oh, what are we reading? <laughs> right. Uh, I also find it, there's a, a citation for a paper, uh, Morton 2005, <laughs> How to Walk in High Heels. <laughs> Maybe that's what I need to read. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but also other papers, uh, one by Cutting and Kolowski, uh, recognizing friends by their walk, which you think about it. And mm-hmm. You can definitely tell, you know, you see a shadow coming up to you in the evening, you can probably tell which one of your friends it is. Yep. So there are a lot of clues in these biomechanical things that mm-hmm. we give off. Yep. Very interesting. Yeah. So very cool. Uh, if you have an idea for a fun paper or feedback for us, we always love audio comments. Remember that. <laughs> Uh, we would love to hear from you. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Yeah, send them in. Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Um, like we said earlier, we hang out in the Swung Slack chat room, swung.rocks, on the Don't Panic channel. We're on Twitter at Don't Panic Geo, where we'll be posting some of these cool pictures that we've received from our listeners. John is at geo underscore Lehman, and I'm at Shannon Doolin. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. 
any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.